Hey guys, welcome back to the Elevated Project Podcast. Today on episode 47, we chat with the goat. That is John Meadows. Super excited for this episode. Lots of good information and just really great to chat with an all-around amazing bodybuilder. A big shout out to my sponsor at Relief Natural Wellness. As most of you are aware, CBD has been trending for a hot minute. Now, we all know what happens when something is crazy popular. Everyone wants to make a quick buck, and this means a lot of cheap, ineffective, and low-quality products on the market. CBD has become super popular for good reason. It is a great all-natural option for treating a variety of conditions like pain, inflammation, sleep, stress, mood, and digestion issues. Relief Natural Wellness is a Canadian company, and they've built their brand on quality. They use only the highest quality Canadian grown hemp for a variety of products ranging from topical to tinctures and complete third-party lab testing on all CBD to demonstrate potency and purity. This is so important for anyone who might be subject to drug testing for THC in occupation or in sport. Their testing provides comfort knowing you'll pass those tests and they even sponsor athletes and retain many customers who do routinely undergo drug testing. Relief sets himself apart from the plethora of CBD products with their evidence-based formulas. This combines specifically selected essential oils to elevate the benefits of CBD, just another reason why their products really are more effective than other CBD products you might find on the market. So don't buy your CBD at a gas station. Hit up www.yourrelief.com for your next online purchase. Use Jamie10 in the checkout for a discount. Hey guys, welcome back to the Elevated Project podcast. Today we have this really amazing guest on. Uh, we have John Meadows. And um, for those of you who don't know him, which I don't know if there's any of you that don't know who John Meadows is, he is the goat of bodybuilding. He's been in it for years um, and he is just amazing. So John, where are you today? <laughs> I'm just at home um, uh, and I'm surrounded by snow. It's been snowing a lot here. Maybe it is there too, but um, yeah, I'm just at home here in Columbus. I'm not traveling right now. All is good. We're just trying to keep warm and uh, that's pretty much it right now. Um, so I have Christine and Dolly with me today. So she's one of the other 
the triad. Um, she is in the States right now. She is in, she's a U.S. implant though. She actually is Canadian. Yeah. I am in Lethbridge, Alberta, and it is minus 30 here. So, um, yeah, it is, we're, we're like deep into winter. So I think Christine's only at like minus five. So yeah. Yeah. Minus five today. It was like, it was negative 12 the other day and I was like posting it and people were like, it's like negative 30 here. I'm like, I don't care. Negative 12 is still freezing. <laughs> where is, where are you at Christine? I'm in Michigan, Troy, Michigan. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I know John, you've been to Canada a few times because looking back at your um, competition history, you've competed in the Toronto pro and also in the Vancouver pro too, right? Oh yeah, that's right. Actually the yeah. Vancouver pro was my <clears throat> pro debut and uh, yes. the Toronto. Yeah. I remember those shows very, very well. <laughs> yeah. And those like, I know the Vancouver show is in July. So you probably hit some really great weather in Vancouver. Um, and then the, it was beautiful. Day. It was beautiful there. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the, um, the Toronto show is always in luck. Usually it's in October, I think. So you probably got some fall weather, but I don't think you'd have any reason to travel to Canada in the winter. So, yeah. Nah, I'll just wait till it warms up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am hoping to go to Toronto this year and um, I'm hoping everything is kind of loosened up by then. And, yeah. and I would actually wouldn't mind going to Vancouver again. Um, we'll see, you know, we'll see how everything's coming along at that point. Yeah. Cause you were in Vancouver a couple of years ago, I think too, just, so you weren't competing, you were there. Yeah, there was, um, there was a contest there and I was there with Big Rami and we were just uh, doing an event there, but yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah. My God, Big Rami must be a monster compared to you. Hey, I got some pictures of it and, um, you know, I have a weird sense of humor. I thought about maybe putting some (laughs) captions on there and saying I was giving him some advice and stuff like that. (laughs) I haven't got to it yet. (laughs) Cause like, okay. So just in comparison, what normally like is your, is your body weight? Like just not when, not competition, but just average, like walking around like right now. Well, I mean, now it's probably on like 213, 214 pounds. Um, which, you know, up until, um, about a year ago, it was normally like probably 225, 230, something like that. Yeah. And how tall are you? Uh, five, six, five, seven, yeah. somewhere and- around there. So I don't know if you you probably don't remember because I know you do a million pictures with people, but I was at the Olympia not last year, the year before, and we were at the Dragons. It was the Dragons gym. Yep, I remember that. I was training there and I walked out of the bathroom and you were standing there. I was like, oh my God, is that John Meadows? (laughs) (laughs) So I have to the right of this big statue, right? It was was right beside that big statue thing down there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I have a picture with you. So yeah, I think we're pretty close to the same height. You out, you outweigh me a little bit, but, um, yeah. but big Rami is like, what is his like off season? Like he's what pushing 300. <laughs> yeah. He's well above that. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, you know, I just wanted to, I want to just touch on like a little bit about your history because you have a really dynamic history, um, with just where you started in bodybuilding. Like you started when you were 13, and I know that on in your pod in the past podcast you talk about this all the time. But um, can you just give like can you just give us like a little Cole's note version of like where you started and like how now like you are you coach you ha- own a supplement company um, 
just, you know, give us just a, a little, some highlights of where you started and how you got here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did actually compete in my first show in 1985 and I was 13 years old and um, I, you know, people always ask me, you know, why would you do that? And I, I have two kids that are uh, just turned 12 and I can't imagine them competing next year. Like, <laughs> like I'm trying to like, what I, what could I have been thinking? And it blows my mind that I was like thinking about bodybuilding when I was that age, but I got it for the magazines. So yes. I um, looked at the magazines and the stores and something just kind of grabbed me. And, and I was like, man, I want to look like this. That is really cool. So I, um, you know, I was lifting weights. I was in football and track and, you know, all kinds of sports. And I thought, Hey, worst case scenario is I'll be a little bit stronger and I'll be able to do better in sports. But I was, uh, I mean, from that age, I wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. I loved it. I loved the training. I enjoyed it. You know, people ask me all the time, well, you know, did kids pick on you? Did you, you know, what were you trying to do lifting weights at that age? I, I just loved it. I just loved it. And, um, I kind of kept to myself a little bit as a, as a, as a, as a kid, you know, I, I, um, like I said, I was in sports and, and all that good stuff, but, um, I just loved it. And that feeling never really left through all the years, you know, through, uh, through a lot of the trials and tribulations I went through, it just never left, you know, I'm, I'll be 49 now in April and, um, you know, just went to the gym, trained my back really, really hard. And I just love it. So, I'm one of the people who I think got into the sport just for the love of it. And, um, you know, and I never fault people like when they leave bodybuilding and move on with life. I never fault them for that because we all have different paths in life. My, my path just seemed to be bodybuilding related in some form, you know, it's, I think it's going to be like that forever. But I mean, you've gone on to be a mentor for so many people and like the, the, the information that you put out about training and the videos, the content that you put out is like, I mean, you by far like one of the go-tos to know that it's legit information. And it's not that you've gone to school for years and you have like, you know, 75, de you know, degrees behind your name. Yours is all experience-based, you know, like you wouldn't know unless like you wouldn't have the knowledge if you hadn't done what you've done. So. Well, you know, I tell people that the advantage that I have over others is just that I've made more mistakes. So I've been in this for a long time and I've done a lot of dumb stuff and, um, but I've always tried to learn from it. And I was also never one to um, kind of just blindly follow the crowd. So I kind of wanted to do things my way and try it. So I was big on experimenting and formulating ideas and, you know, Hey, let's try these ideas. Some will work, some won't, but you know, I'm glad I had that kind of mentality because you know, if you look at a lot of the things that people do in bodybuilding now, a lot of those ideas come back to just weird ideas I had one day. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I try to, when I coach people, I try to encourage that, encourage them to think and think on their own. And, you know, um, bodybuilding, it's, um, I believe in the, the principle of individuality. So there is no uniform set of rules that apply equally to everybody. You have to experiment, you have to try different things. And I've just been, I've just always been big on that. I keep up with all the research, you know, my, my, I've got good friends that are the best researchers in the industry. So I know what's out there um, research wise. And a lot of the research now is just, yeah, you know, been saying that for 15 years now. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's good to stay on top of the research. I think it's good to experiment. It's good to try different things and always keep an open mind. And 
I train in different sports too. Like I, I train football players. And so I have a, I train athletes as well. So I have a kind of a different perspective on some things and I bring um, kind of new ideas, I think in some ways. Um, but anyways, long story short. Um, yeah. I've just made a ton of mistakes <laughs> and um, learn from them. The best and, way to learn though. <laughs> and um, so, and I remember reading or listening to one of your podcasts um, uh, that you were squatting a ridiculous amount at like a really young age too. Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously genetically have been strong, right? You, you have strength in your, you know, like you strength is something that you just, you can't just acquire just because you want it. Like you definitely have to have some genetic component for, for strength, especially at, at what you were doing at such a young age too. Yeah. I mean, if you look at my structure, I have wide hips, I have a short femur, you know, yep. so I'm kind of built to squat, Yes. but I always loved squatting. And my hero in bodybuilding when I was that age was Tom Platts. Yes. So, you know, I always geared my training toward really heavy leg stuff, hard, like really hard sets. And, um, you probably read, I was squatting somewhere around 500 in high school, which, which, um, which I did. And then, my uh, squat strength actually peaked when I was training at Westside Barbell, which was in 1995, 96, around that time. So I was still in my early 20s, and that's when I was squatting, you know, just just under 800 pounds. Um, wow. But uh, I just love to squat. I just love to squat. There was always something about it. And I was really good on my squats until I hit about – is when I hit 43 years old. When I hit 43, my lower back just had a little bit of a harder time handling that load. Yeah. Um, but all the way, I mean, I remember when I was 42, I did a set with uh, 415 for 30 or 405 for 30 reps. I still had crazy strength at that point. But then like the next year, like, oh man, I'm starting to feel it now. <laughs> yeah, so which, now I've obviously got to be much more careful. Which we're, what later on, I do want to touch on that whole changing training as we age. Right. But sure. uh, so when, like at what point, cause I know you worked like a, a corporate job for quite some time. Did you not? In the meantime, oh, yeah. full-time corporate job, competing, bodybuilding. Were you coaching people at that time? Yes. Yeah. So yes. It was, uh, it was very challenging. So I started coaching when I was in college. And, you know, I was already competing in college. And um, I was winning shows. Actually, when I was in college, I never lost a show, which is, I find that pretty cool because I had no money. You know, I was just your typical broke college kid. And I went to Aldi's. It's a, you know, kind of a cheaper restaurant here or not restaurant, but grocery store. I don't know if you guys have them there, but um, I made deals with the managers. Like if I buy a whole case of tuna, like how much can I get the tuna for? So, you know, I was eating these really bland diets of tuna and rice and, you know, bags of potatoes, but that's all I could afford. And um, so I always showed up really, really lean, really, really shredded. And people are like, man, how'd you get so cut? I'm like, I'm so poor. I can't afford anything. Like, <laughs> even if I wanted to eat a bunch of stuff, I couldn't. I didn't have any money. So I was winning all these shows um, at a young age. And I, I started training people back then. And when I was in college, I was also working at um, a world gym initially where I started training people. And my path was, um, was I think, probably a little bit different, but I was so passionate about training I was training and I was just really trying to push people and get them excited about training and but a lot of people they just kind of wanted to come to the gym they wanted to they wanted a trainer they didn't really they weren't really into getting results it's like they just wanted somebody to talk to 
which is fine. But my mindset when I was in my 20s was, man, I was ready to go. Like, you show up, let's go, let's get to work. So I found myself just drained mentally. I would spend all morning and then I would go to classes and come back, train a few more people. And by the time it was time for me to train, I would be mentally drained. So I quit training people in person and, um, and I took a corporate job. I was like, you know what, let me just get a corporate job and let me just focus on my own training because I felt like it was really slipping. And so I, I went into more of a professional job. I remember walking into the interview, it was to be a recruiter uh, to find, help people find jobs. Uh, and I remember walking in and the guy was like, well, we can't hire you. You don't have any experience. Like you've never done this before. And I said, <laughs> I had a, a card, you know, my business card. And all it was, was a picture of me winning the Mr. Ohio title, standing beside a huge trophy. That's all it was. And I pulled my card out. I set my card down. I said, I don't, I bet you anything. You don't have one single person that works for you. That's as dedicated as I am. He's like, what do you mean by that? And I, I showed him my card and I said, this is what my meal regimen was like. This is how I train. This is the kind of discipline I have. I said, now, if your job entails some kind of science that I don't understand, and it's probably not right for me, but I think it's more just working with people, if I'm not mistaken. He's like, yeah, you're right. Um, so long story short, he hired me. And, um, and that's actually how my career evolved in the corporate world. So then my next job, so as a, as a recruiter, I knew who all the people in town were they were hiring, right? So I knew who the people where the jobs were. So then one day I went to meet uh, one of the hiring managers at a company and he needed a project manager. I was like, I was getting kind of tired of my recruiting job. And I said, hey, would you consider me for that job? He's like, well, John, you don't really have any experience in this. I really need somebody with experience. I said, no, but um, man, I got a winning track record. I win at everything I do. And I, and I explained to him where I graduated in high school and, and I went through all those things, my bodybuilding, what I had done in bodybuilding. And he's like, all right, we'll give you a chance. So he hired me and I went and got my project management certification. It was, it's called a PMP. Back then it was pretty rare. It's common, more common now, but back then it was pretty rare. So I, I kind of moved up the chain of that company and I just began managing large projects. And then a, a bank, Chase Bank, JP Morgan Chase Bank, um, one of my friends was a recruiter for them and they were looking for a, you know, a project manager. So same thing happened. He's like, well, you know, uh, I'm interviewing. They're like, well, you know, we really need someone who understands banking. And I said, you know what? I don't understand all the banking software. I don't understand everything goes on in branches, but here's my track record. <laughs> you know, if you just give me a chance, I'm going to win. I guarantee you that. So um, I worked my way up the ladder at the bank. Uh, when I, when I left, I had just finished running one of the largest projects in the corporation's history. And um, so I had a very successful career. And then I, you know, and then all that time I was training people, but then I started doing it online. Yeah. You know, that business started for me when I started doing the online stuff in about 2007, 2008. So I was essentially working two jobs. And then I'd had my kids. And so it was like, oh my God, I'm going to like work my life away. And I'm not even going to see my kids grow up. So in 2012 is when I said, you know what, I'm going to kind of step away from the corporate side of things and just focus on this fitness career and my family. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And then what a cool story. Year, Love that. What year Thank did you start granite supplements? For uh, about four years ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is not an easy thing to do either. Cause so my partner, Mike, he owns a supplement supplement company as well. So I mean, yeah, people think it's like real easy to succeed in that business. It's easy. It's easy to start a company, 
Yeah. But to have a lasting world. success is a whole nother story. That's a very, very tough industry. And it's so um, saturated. It's very saturated. And there's, there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of competition. There's a lot of shady things that go in the industry. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough industry for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to just put out there to talk about adversity, because I think that you've had definitely had a lot of it that has been thrown your way over the past few years. Um, and I know you talk about this quite often, but I mean, I think one of the biggest things was when you had colon disease in 2005, right? no idea what was going on you're in the middle of prep stomach pains yep yeah yeah it was um that was um that was a real blessing that's one of the best things that's ever happened to me um so in 2005 you're right I was doing some cardio was three or four I can't remember exactly somewhere around three to five weeks out from Mr. USA started having stomach problems pains and I thought when the show was over uh, the Mr. USA. I thought when I was over, oh, it'll go away. It's just stress related. And I got home and not only did it not go away, it actually got worse. So I got home on a Sunday, Monday morning, I was in the hospital and um, um, I got released and they were, oh, they said, oh, you just have constipation. I was like, I haven't eaten for two weeks. There's nothing even in me to give me constipation. And so um, I had a really bad night one night where I, um, uh, I was sitting in the bathtub and I just wanted to drown myself because I was in so much pain. I just couldn't take it. So my wife took me to the hospital and she's, you know, she said, he's not leaving until you guys figure out what's wrong with him. And um, while I was in the hospital, I started bleeding, blood pouring out of me. So they rushed me into surgery and they removed my entire colon. And after the fact, they sent some tissue to the Mayo Clinic. And after the fact, they said, oh yeah, we've, the Mayo Clinic said, we've seen this. It's a rare disease. I think they said at the time they had nine cases of it on file. It's called idiopathic myelintimal hyperplasia, the mesenteric vein, which basically was a disease in the mesenteric vein of my colon and the sigmoid part of my colon. And um, that was that's a ma- that's a major thing to get your colon taken out. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, so I had a ileostomy for a little while, then I got reconnected, and then when they reconnected me there was some um, scar tissue that formed in my stomach, caused a blockage, so food couldn't come down. Yeah. So I would eat or drink and it wouldn't go through me. So my stomach started getting so big, the staples started popping out of my stomach. So then they took me right back into surgery. Then I got an infection. Long story short, I ended up losing about 60 pounds and I had to be fed through a TPN line in my arm. And, um, you know, so I got back to the gym. I was 162 pounds. I think it was 160 something. Maybe it was 166. Whatever it was, it's like what I'm supposed to be on the BMI scale. Yes. And I was thinking, like, how can they expect me to look like this? I look like a skeleton. Um, <laughs> but apparently that's what I'm supposed to weigh, according to the BMI scale. So it was a long, long road back. I had more surgeries after that. I had incisional hernias from all the surgeries I had. Um, I had the infections were really bad. So um, that all happened in 2005. And then some of the other surgeries were a little bit later down the road. But um, so... Um, but when that all happened to me, um, there was one moment that really sticks with me. And when I was in the hospital and I was bleeding, um, I was with it enough to know that I was in shock because I was going into shock, but I, I knew I was, but I could still think. And, and in my head, I thought, well, today I'm going to die. 
I mean, it was very, it was, um, it looked like a horror movie. There was so much blood coming out, coming out of me. And so the, the lady, when I saw the nurse's look on her face, she had this look of like, oh no, this is bad. When I saw that look on her face and she took off running out of the room, I knew it was bad too. So she came back in, they put me on a, on the bed and they're like, we're taking you into surgery right now. And I just remember thinking, um, really like how important my family was and my friends and how I had spent some part of my life worrying about things I didn't really, I probably weren't a big deal. And it really um, changed, changed my perspective, I think for the better and improved my life. But I remember when I woke up in ICU, I was so happy. The nurses were like, wow, you're happy. I'm like, I'm alive. Like, I thought that was it. I thought I was done. Cause I remember thinking what, what was going through my head on the way in the surgery. So when I woke up, I was like, I'm actually alive. Like I got another shot, you know, it's not, it's not over for me yet. So um, of course the nurses were all real pretty and they gave me sponge baths too, which I really appreciated. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite part of it in ICU. Hey, I'm feeling a little dirty. Can you give me another sponge bath? So, um, but um, so it really, it really, when I went back to the corporate world later, cause I, that was back in 2005, I had a really different perspective and, when we would have issues pop up or people were going crazy, I had a much different outlook on it. I, you know, my perspective is more like, well, are people losing money right now? No. So every customers are fine. Yeah. Then why are we panicking? Like, let's go home. Let's sleep. Let's come back tomorrow. And we'll figure out what the problem is. So it actually probably helped me in my uh, corporate career. Cause I, I think I viewed um, problems a little differently and being able to understand what's a real problem and what's not a, not a big problem and that translated over into my life, too, where um, I think I'm a little better. I still struggle with it, um, but I think I'm better at understanding what's a real problem and what's not a big deal. Like if somebody calls me a name on YouTube, it's not a big deal. Right. Um, so just trying to understand what what's a really big deal. That's a big deal. What's not a big deal. So so that. Yeah, I mean, um, that's my like quick story of 2005. But it impacted me in such a such a positive way. And, you know, through the years I've had um, many, you know, friends that are surgeons and they're like, you know, I'll go do, we'll go clean those scars up for you on your stomach. I'm like, no, leave those scars there because that's a reminder of what I went through. And those scars like are, are memories for me that I, I like them. They actually had tell a story and they tell, they tell me the story. So leave them there. Um, and then, and, and I ended up getting my pro card anyway with the scars on my stomach. So, which, you know, people said, oh, you'll never, his, his, I had a really nice abdominal wall before all this happened. Yeah. And then after my surgeries and everything, it, you know, it looked a little disfigured and scarred up. And so I wondered in my mind, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to overcome this and be a pro, but I did eventually. And it all worked out. Yeah. And so just touching on the whole pro thing, how long did it take you to win your pro card? Like you won your pro card in what year was it, 2007? No, no, not until 2015. Oh, right. It was 2015. So Okay. So just for perspective, because I think there's so many, like, if you look at like the bodybuilding world right now, people like just get into it, expect it's like, ah, it's my first year competing. I'm going to win my pro card, you know, road to the pros, blah, blah, blah. Hashtag. That's like CrossFit. (laughs) And how many, how many shows did you compete in before you, before you won your pro card? Well, I think I did 16 or 17 pro qualifiers. Yes. So that doesn't think, count like your regional shows because you didn't. Right. I think I had done. I think I had done. 
60 shows altogether because I because th- when I turned pro, I did nine shows pretty quickly in two years. Yeah. And I, I know I got up to like 70 shows, but I think I had done like 60 as an amateur and like 16 of those were pro qualifiers. Right. Like my first pro qualifier was in 1998 nationals. Yeah. So that was 17 years earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's like people need to have some patience. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I understand. That's the way yeah. people think now. It's, it's, I um, I get it. I get it. But I get that too. I get people to come to me and, and normally what I say is, look, I understand you're excited. That's great. But, um, we got to also deal in reality and, um, it may not happen. So what's going to happen if you go three years and don't get a pro card, are you going to quit? Yeah. And you're like, Oh man, I don't know. That says a lot right there. Like, you know, because you have to, kind of, the thing is, is you have to enjoy the journey and the process of it and be in love with that. It's not just about that end point of just being on stage, right? It's like, it's just so much more than that. So, um, and so just touching on one, since we're talking about competing and shows, I know I've heard you say a couple times, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say this a couple times that um, when you have a family, because I know you are a really tight family unit, like you you support your family a lot. You get a lot of support from your family. You spend a ton of time with your kids. When you were competing, I remember you saying that you need to make it as normal as possible still. Like it has to be something that it isn't, doesn't take it, take you out so that it makes you like have a different life from what your family is. Um, So that, and I think I remember you saying we still had dinner every night together. My food was just different, but we still had that cohesive family unit so that it really, we tried not to make it so that I was like something that wasn't connected to my family. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So it's so easy in uh, bodybuilding to get so self-absorbed that you just forget about the people around you. And oftentimes those are the people that are supporting you that you need the most. And I've seen many, many families fall apart. I've seen um, some unfortunate situations and, um, and I, and I, um, you know, learned this bit the hard way too. You know, there were years that, you know, my wife wanted to kill me because I was so self-absorbed and, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win this, contest and you know you're just going to have to suck it up and deal with me and that's a poor attitude and um it's a cop-out you know people like well you don't understand bodybuilding you know you got to do that I watched pumping iron and Arnold said that when his dad died he had no emotions and like that's the way it should be and like go ahead and good luck in 10 years we'll revisit this conversation and then tell me how what you think um so I learned the hard way fortunately I didn't have anything too bad happen but um you know, it's, 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 um, it's a misnomer that you can't continue with a life. I mean, can you go out on the weekend and drink and party? Of course not. But for someone to say they can't sit down with their family and eat with their family, um, for someone to say that they're too tired to go to their kids' activities, I don't think there's too many people that dieted as hard as I did when I was dieting for the Arnold Classic on 1,600 calories and I felt like death. But you know what? I still made it to my kids' games. Yeah. Um, suck it up. You know, and, you know, the other thing is, if you make your family miserable, then how can you expect them to even support you? Right. So what I did was I tried to be very clear in my communication. So it was, okay, I'm really tired right now. If you, you know, this is me talking to my wife. If you can just let me take an hour nap, I'll wake up, I'll feel a lot better and I'll, and I'll 
my interaction with my kids will be a lot better. It won't be just me laying on the couch like a zombie beside them. I'll actually, I should be able to talk to them because it's not just quantity of time. It's quality of time. Right, That's true. And um, so she was very understanding. You know, go ahead and take your nap and then I would wake up and then I could do stuff with the kids. And um, anyways, long story short, you just have to weave that stuff into your life. You can, and then I, would, and I kept a cheat meal every weekend, um, no matter what. So I don't care what the show was. And you know what? I showed up in really good shape every show I did. So, um, you know, on Fridays or Saturdays, hey, guys, let's go out. Where do you want to go eat? Let's have a good time. So there was always something they're look forward to, looking forward to on the weekend. So you just, I just caution people um, to be really, really careful with that mindset of, look, I know you got to be um, focused on yourself and your journey, but let's think about this in realistic, realistic fashion. You're going to go to the gym and train. You're going to do some cardio and you're going to eat some meals. That doesn't account for 24 hours of your day. No, right? Like you're going to be conscious. You're going to be awake some other parts of your day. So just make sure you use that time wisely. It's not rocket science. It's the same argument that people make. Well, you can't have a job and be a pro bodybuilder. What do you mean you can't have a job? Like when I worked at the corporate world, I got up at breakfast. Then I had my protein shake at work at 10 o'clock. Then I had lunch. Then I had another protein shake at three o'clock. Then I went home and had a pre-workout meal. Then I lifted weights. I got home and had a post-workout meal. What was so hard about that? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's different if you're, I don't know if you're, um, maybe doing heavy labor for eight hours a day, that makes it much more difficult. But for most people, it actually gives you a schedule. It actually allows you to be disciplined. It puts discipline right in your lap and says, here's your schedule. Um, So I just think, you know, I think it's easy to get lazy and get a poor mental perspective on our sport. And I just try to caution, particularly the young people to not kind of fall into that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've always thought about too, that it, if, it doesn't add to your life or increase the quality of your life, then it probably isn't for you. And I know that like, I mean, I've, I've prepped a number of times and yes, it's very difficult and it definitely, it takes so much planning and it takes so much scheduling and and routine and groundhog day just over and over again. But um, I still just think that like, it's still the way that I do it. It doesn't take away from my life. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and if it gets to the point where it does, then I really have to reassess if this is something I want to do. Like, is yeah. it worth it? So is it really worth it? That's right. Is it really worth it. If it's going to, you know, cause problems and make me, you know, resentful and make my family resentful and everything else. So, you know, it's like, then I did, would just go to training because I still want to train, but that's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so Okay. The other one that we, that I kind of jumped over was just the, the, the most recent health issue that popped up for you. So, which was just last year. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, that was May 10th or May 11th. Um, so I was training and we were on lockdown here. We're in quarantine. None of the gyms were open. And I had a little garage gym that I was training at. And, um, I was just kind of just trying to do what I could do to get by. And, um, uh, I was training. I felt a lot of pain in my chest and um, it got uh, worse and worse and worse. And I finally just said, you know what? I don't think I better call the ambulance. So my buddy that was with me called the ambulance. And by that point, then it was really painful. I was yeah. like, and then my left arm started going numb. I was like, ah, that doesn't sound good. Like this, this is not good. This is bad. Yes. So they put me in the ambulance and the guy said, yeah, you're having a heart attack. And um, again, it was like mentally, I was like, man, 
um, it hurt so bad. I was like, man, am I going to die? And I just kept thinking about my kids. Right. So, um, you know, it's not certainly not a pleasant thought to think about leaving your kids without a father. Um, I didn't have a mom or dad. I didn't want my kids to be in that position. So uh, they rushed me right into the uh, cath unit. They put the cath in my radial, uh, radial artery and looked at my heart. And he said I had a blood clot that had lodged in the uh, left anterior descending artery, which, you know, is the widow maker. That's like where you don't want it to go. Yes. And it was 100% blocked. And, um, and I was really, really mad. I was really mad because I do all these things. You know, I have, I have great blood work. I had to. I've had calcium score tests done. Um, I have, you know, three out of four arteries are zero scores. The other one is, I think it was a 13. So I have like no plaque in, in my arteries. I have no inflammation in my body. My CRP score is usually like a 0.1 or a 0.2. Yeah. Um, so it's so frustrating. Like you do everything you can, all these things point to a really good picture. And then you, then I get a blood clot, which by the way, the thing happened in 2005, that was, a Essentially, the artery had a disease and caused a blood clot in that or in that vein, the mesenteric vein, yeah. and the vein exploded. That's why I was bleeding so much. So, um, I was so mad. I was so angry in the hospital. Um, I probably should have been happy that I was still alive, but I was feeling a little bit sorry for myself. Just to be honest with you, and um, I was very frustrated. And and the blood clot had, like I said, it was 100% blocked the, that artery. So I did have some damage to my heart, and. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, took 16 days off out of the gym and I started back really light, like real careful, no Valsalva maneuver, no hard pressure on my, my heart or anything. And I had worked my way slowly back and I went back to my next appointment, my cardiologist, and I was feeling really good. Like I felt excellent when I went in the seam and I went in the seam and he said, yeah, you, um, you have a blood clot in the, at the apex of your left ventricle down there at the bottom of your heart. You have a blood clot. It can travel anywhere. It can kill you right now. And he said, and your ejection fraction is 29%. And you can, you can go out of rhythm. You can get some arrhythmia that can also kill you. So we recommend you get um, an atrial defibrillator implanted in your chest. Yeah. Now, I walked in there thinking he was going to tell me, great, you're doing great. Keep yeah. on moving. And that's the message I get from him. So that was like um, a kick to the groin. You know, I, I was like, oh, my God. But I went and got some other opinions and they were like, you know, you got to give this time. The fact that you feel good is a really good sign. You got to give it time. So I just kept taking my supplements, taking my medicine, training, you know, uh, just kind of, again, build my way up, uh, you know, slowly and methodically. And um, so then the next appointment I had was actually back in December. And he said, um, well, the blood clot's completely gone. And he said, your ejection fraction is up to 35% now. I think it's going to keep on going up. And he said, whatever training you're doing or whatever, whatever you do, your heart has no trouble with it at all. Um, so he was very encouraging. So I was like, well, that's good because I feel totally normal. Like I don't like people say, well, how do you feel? I feel just like how I used to feel. I feel normal. And I don't really hold back on my training now either. You know, I make sure I get my cardio in and I don't go insane like I did when I was in my 20s or 30s, but I still do some pretty hard stuff. So um, so now, I mean, things are looking up. They're really good. But that was um, that was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so 
did they have any idea about why it was happening? No. Did they conclusively say, well, we think it's because of this and this. Um, the first doctor said, well, I think this is cause you take testosterone. And I said, well, I've been taking 150 to 200 milligrams for three years. And I said, I'm just curious, why aren't thousands of other guys having blood clot related heart attacks if that's what it is? Yeah. And he said, well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't really have an answer for that. And, and especially from someone like, I mean, you obviously have routine blood work done. Like how often are you having labs done to check all of your, like your cholesterol and like everything? Two, two times a year. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, then he said, well, I think it might be your LDL is a little too high. And I said, well, I, I've got a calcium score test done. There's no plaque buildup. So he's like, oh, okay, well, um, I'm not really sure then. Yeah. So uh, then my next doctor, he was like, um, no, there's something with your blood. You, uh, there's some kind of clotting issue. Yeah. So we did a lot of clotting tests too. We didn't do them all but we did do a lot of them and they didn't really find anything there either. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I do take blood thinners now yeah. and I'll probably have to take them, you know, uh, who knows how long, but considering what happened to me in 2005 also was, I mean, really had it really, there was some kind of clotting there involved as well. I, I think, yeah. um, I think it's, I'm probably be on the safe side. I have to take some level of blood thinner probably the rest of my life, you know, I, um, what I was taking when I got to the hospital, I've cut in half. So now I take half what I used to take and I still take a baby aspirin at night. But, um, so no, they didn't really give me a good explanation. Um, so, you know, what do you do? Even if they, you know, no matter what they say, you're still going to try to live your best life. You're still going to keep moving forward. So no matter what they told me, I was still going to do the same thing. I'm still going to, still going to exercise. I'm still going to try to have a good positive mindset. I'm I'm still going to do all the same things I was doing before. So yeah. Um, um, so supplementation wise, like just over the counter, is there anything different that you take now to support cardiovascular health? Or- yeah, I take a whopping dose of CoQ10. Um, yeah. So yeah, how, I mean, I take how much CoQ10 are you taking? I take 600 milligrams a day. You take it, break it up or is it just once a day? Um, I take it. I take it all at once. Yeah. It's a fat soluble uh, supplement. So I take mine twice. But, I mean, there's a lot of what's that? I take mine twice a day. Okay. I, I mean, there's no downside to that either, um, obviously, but um, there's a lot of uh, uh, research on improving ejection fraction yeah. with CoQ10. And uh, I take L- L-carnitine. I take three grams a day of that, which is yeah. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I take uh, ribose. I take about 10 grams a day of that for ATP. Yeah. Um, i trying to think about taking anything. I take some natokinase just to, for the blood thinning, thinning effect as well. Yeah. Actually, my company, we're working on a heart supplement right now. And oh, yeah. like, so it's been interesting because I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't do all that in one supplement or it would cost $200. Yeah. <laughs> um, guy, sister, Nina, what's that crazy guy? Want? Um, so um, that's what I take over the counter. And, you know, obviously I got to take the medications too. Yeah. But um, so anyways, that's what I take. Yeah. Um, and then what, so how about, sorry, go, go ahead, Christine. How much are you training right now? I still train five days a week with weights and my cardio. I got a, a puppy. Um, yeah, I I take, baby. yeah. So we go for walks, even when it's cold out, we'll still go for walks. And originally I could tire him out, but now, man, he's so full of energy. No matter how <laughs> fast I walk, it's he's It's a breeze for him. Yeah. It's, it's an American, it's an American bully. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. yeah he's just a big ball of muscle. Like, he doesn't yeah. get tired. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I was actually going to ask about cardio just about, so um, steady state, you just steady state cardio now. Well, you know, the first doctor said he wanted my heart rate up to a certain point, but yeah. first of all, I never could get my heart rate high unless I was going crazy with something. And now yeah. I take a beta blocker. So yeah. Matt, like my pulse is usually 57, 58. Yeah. And even like we were having, we were having fun a couple of weeks ago in the gym, we were training legs. I did a really hard set. And then I said, and then my training partners were like, they're pretty gassed. And I said, just for fun, take my pulse right now. So he took my pulse. And I want to say it was 77. And this was after like a drop set on the bit pendulum <laughs> squat. Are you serious? That's crazy. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, I can't, I kind of gave up on the get your heart rate thing up to 130, wow. you know, cause yeah. I have to go so hard to do that. My muscles burn. It turns into uh, like a leg press. Right. <laughs> so I just do more steady state. I love how you say it was like, I was doing a hard set of, of legs and like a hard set of legs for John Meadows. I don't know that there's many people that could actually survive <laughs> like that. So, yeah, I mean, anyone that has ever watched his training videos, it's you, you go to an intensity that I think very few people can even comprehend. So it like, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, well, you know, I got a lot of that from Tom Platt when I was young. Yeah, I, I saw I saw how Tom could um, like reach into his soul to keep going in a set. Like there was something in him. It's that dark place. Yeah. Yeah, and like I love that. Like um, the best feeling is when you leave the gym and your workout, um, you've done something maybe you didn't even think you could do, or you've done something that seems so hard, but you did it. It's like a mini victory. Yeah. And when you leave the gym. Um, it's just a good feeling. It's a good feeling. Like, man, I can't, like, you feel like successful, like you just did something special. So I always, when I didn't have that feeling, I was always like, yeah, can I really do, do enough? Yeah. So, you know, um, the intensity part was always something within my control and, you know, I could work as hard as I wanted to work. So for me, the hard part was just finding the balance of what is enough. Like, you know, at some point you probably want to go too crazy, but what's that old saying? You never know where the line is until you cross it a little. That's <laughs> true. Right. So yeah. I wanted to find where that line was in my training. And yeah. I think people are so scared now to go hard. They don't even come close. They can't even see the line. No. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm like, man, you're not giving yourself enough credit. You're capable of so much more than what you're doing. Yeah. That's one thing I'm, I'm a big believer in. And I think um, there's still a lot of guys out there, a lot of women out there that are training their butts off. No doubt. But I get frustrated on like social media because so many people are just talking about don't go too hard, don't push too hard, your results are going to be pretty much the same. Like, no, it's not. I've never met somebody at, at an elite level who half, you know, half trained. Lost it. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't exist. Like you no ass or no ass. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, you just you don't get to an elite like level, it. whether it's CrossFit or football or whatever it is, you don't luck into it. You gotta work. Yeah especially in bodybuilding when your results are, are dictated by, you know, stress you put on a muscle. So it's a little frustrating, but you know what? I just kind of, again, I try to keep teaching the young, the young people, especially like you're going to have to put in some work and all those people that think they're going to be a pro in one year, you're going to have to put in the work. Like you can't escape it. 
Well, and the thing with putting in that hard work too, like if you can work at that intensity and give it everything you've got, the other, the flip side to that coin is, is prioritizing recovery, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. You you can't have one without the other. Hard and you can put it, you can be all in, but then you really have to make sure that you know what recovery means. Because I think there are people that the reason why they're saying, oh, you have to, you know, you have to, you can't go hard all the time and you should be careful about how far you push. But those people don't understand how valuable recovery is because they want to train seven days a week so that they, you know, do make content for Instagram. So. (laughs) Well, you know, you, yeah, muscle building is a, it's a, it's a mathematical process too. You need more muscle protein synthesis than muscle protein breakdown. And the recovery aspect to me is managing muscle protein breakdown. And, and when you are doing things to do that, to help that equation shift to your favor, that's how you do it. But um, you're right. A lot of people just, they don't really think about that part or, you know, well, nutrient timing doesn't matter. Well, it does when you're training at an elite level. Now it does matter then. Mm-hmm. If you're going to the gym and goofing off, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But, um, you know, proper sleep, you know, that's when I do seminars. I have a whole section just on sleep and yes uh, recovery from that but you know so there's a lot of things you really got to focus on to go to go along with as you said the, the hard training as well so let's touch on training and um and nutrition then because um i want to talk about the amount of volume that you do that i mean um i don't you you do a lot of volume if you look at your like even if you were to look at the training um that you have on your website, like the programs, there's a shit ton of volume in there, right? And there's often, I think there's people that argue that people don't need that much volume in order to train or in order to make progress. And I mean, I always believe that it's like, you know, quality of that volume over quantity. And I think that you stand behind that as well, right? If, you know, there's like fluff volume and, and then there's like quality volume, but you, like your you you train at high volume so how have you been able to do that and is that something you think everyone can do I think um I think that's a great question that um is probably going to differ for for people and um I would actually characterize my training as uh medium volume and uh <laughs> I think so I think when you get into the volume discussion I think some of it is semantics. And what I mean by that is like, I've done seminars with Dory Nates before and he would describe how he would approach a back workout. So let's say he's going to do his famous supinated row. So he's going to do a set with a plate, a set with a plate and a quarter, a set with two plates, a set with two and a quarter, then a set with three plates, for example. Now he would only count the last set because he felt like that was the really challenging set that mattered. So Dorian would call that one set. Then you see somebody else do the same thing. Well, I did five sets. I did one plate, one and a quarter, two, two and a quarter, and three. I did five sets. Well, they both just did the same thing. One guy said one set. One guy said five sets. But they realistically both just did the same thing. Yeah. Um, so one guy would look at that and say it's high volume. Another guy would look at that and say it's low volume. So I think, first of all, there's a semantic disconnect with people. So what I've gotten more toward... Um, advocating is quality reps. And what I mean by quality reps, I personally believe that the reps that are the most difficult at the end of a set are the ones that really matter. If you could do something for 10 reps and you stopped at seven every single time, 
you are not going to convince me that someone who's advanced is going to get better training that way. There's no argument you can give me. You can say a beginner or maybe to some degree an inter intermediate, and you can give me some reasons there and I'll buy it. I agree with you. But when you talk about someone who's advanced, you cannot grow if you don't have those tough quality reps. Yeah. So I would look at it this way. I would say um, now the way I would count it is I would say the sets that I went somewhere close to failure, the last couple reps, those reps actually made a difference. So if you say, okay, I'm going to do four sets of 10 and the last two reps of each set is, are going to be really hard. So I'm going to get eight really hard reps. That's what I'm going to hear. I'm not going to hear four sets of 10. I'm going to hear four sets of two to three of those reps being really hard. So I'm going to say eight to 12. I'm going to say you said eight to 12 quality reps. Now let's say you do one of my cluster sets. So let's say you do 10 reps. The ninth and 10th rep are pretty daggone hard. You rest 20 seconds. Then you do another six or seven reps and they're all hard. Then you rest 20 seconds and you do another five reps. So you might get 15 quality reps out of that. Yeah. So I would say you got more work out of the, out of them, but one set than the other guy did out of the four sets of 10. Yeah. Now, maybe the person that's doing the um, four sets of 10 approach just doesn't have it in them mentally to go crazy and do the hard cluster set. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, you got to know what you can do and maximize it. So I don't think one of those approaches is better than the other. I think you just got to understand the quality reps. What are the reps that really make a difference? So if you're working up to one set, like let's say you do one plate, two plate, three plates, the three plates is the only set that really challenges you and you get the last two or three are hard. Well, then that whole exercise, you really only did two or three reps that were hard. Yeah. So that's not much volume. On paper, it might've said one warm up set, then another set, then another set, but you kept climbing. Okay. So in that case, I would actually call that low volume. Yeah. And one of the things I did a, I did a poor job of, I've been writing programs for 11 years now, actually writing them and selling them for 11 years. And one of the things I did a poor job of is like, so let's take leg press, for example. I used to have, let's say that, you know, you had a strong guy that could do, say could do 10 plates. So he'd do one plate for 10 aside, two plates aside for 10, three plates aside for 10, four plates aside for 10. That's how I used to do it. And, and I would tell him when he gets to where he can barely do 10, that that's his last set. So I would say me looking back now, that was poor programming. I didn't do a good job. But what I would say now is I would rather you do 10, 10, 10, then maybe just threes to safely get you up to your top set. So you didn't burn all your energy. So you can put all you got into that top set and really work the top set. Cause those are, that's the set that's going to matter the most. Maybe do one set there, maybe do two sets there, but don't kind of wear yourself out. So I look at that and it's high volume but it's probably not the best planning. Now, will it still work for people? Yeah, of course it can still work. I mean, of course, yeah, it can still work. Is it the most optimal? Eh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Probably not. But, um, you know, the thing is, is you can do, you can succeed so many different ways. You just got to kind of find what works for you. And then there's phases I go through. So there's phases where working up to that top set and going crazy. You know, if I do four exercises, it'll be four sets. But the fourth set on each exercise will be really hard. And it takes a lot of mental strength. There's sometimes that I'm, I'm a little burnt out. I want to go back to the old three sets of 10 or four sets of 10. Yeah. Because I can't quite handle getting myself cranked up to that level. So it also, you know, just because it works for you at one point, it doesn't mean you can train like that all year. Like I'll give an example. I did back today. 
And I didn't do any crazy sets. I did the traditional three or four sets on five exercises. So some people would probably look at that and say, well, that's pretty high volume. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess, I, I guess so. I mean, each set probably had maybe two hard reps in it. It wasn't an overwhelming amount of hard reps, but mentally that's just what I had in me today. I just, I today I wasn't going to do it. You know, it definitely so. changed. I mean, there's times where, yeah, mentally we go in and it's just, we don't have like our normal jam. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think that's one of an important thing about is listening to your own feedback, your, your own biofeedback when you're training, as opposed to just following what's on a piece of paper. Yeah. Right. Well, and I tell people all the time when they're following my programs, they're like, man, I feel like I really needed a break after that day. Is it okay if I take a day off? I'm like, yeah, you're tired. You barely get out of bed. Yeah, man, take a day off. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. or, you know, I feel bad. I didn't set any PRs. You know what? Chasing PRs is fine. It's a great thing, but it does. If you don't hit a PR, it doesn't mean your workout was a waste. No. I mean, like I said, my strongest squats were when I told you earlier, it was when I was in my early 20s. I never squatted more than when I was 24 years old, when I did 785. I never did that again. My strength in my squats actually went down, but my legs got three inches bigger over the years. Yes. So just because you're not setting PRs doesn't mean your workout's not successful. Just get in there and work and be I consistent. See. You're going to get more results out of the long term being consistent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So true. So talking about that, then, since you brought up the squats when you were in your 20s, how has training changed for you as you've gotten older? What, like, do you have to train differently now? And do you see that with your, with even with your clients, like um, adjusting training volume or types of training, depending on the age, um, or even just between females and males? Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of trends. I, I, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say when people start getting in their 40s and 50s, like your recovery is not quite what it used to be in your younger. I, I feel pretty safe saying that. That's what I, I observe. That. <laughs> yeah, that's what I observe. And that's what I feel myself personally, too. Yeah. Um, and I would also say that exercise sequence uh, plays a much bigger role. You know, when you're 20 years old, you can go in the gym, you can do some heavy skull crushers to start your tricep workout. But then if I tried that now, my elbows would be blown out. I'd, I'd be getting tricep surgery. You know, you can go in, you can maybe bench heavy when you're in your twenties. If I went in there right now and my first exercise, I benched heavy, I would tear a pec or I would blow out my rotator cuff. So you've got to look at the sequence of your exercises. How are you doing them in order to stay in one piece? I felt a little bit of a pull, which I haven't had in years. I felt a little bit of a pull last week on my upper pec. I haven't felt that in years, but guess what? I was doing heavy inclines first and I never do that. I never do that. I always do it second. Yeah. But Hey, you know, I made a mistake and I paid for it. So um, I think training definitely changes. I think that you can't quite recover as well as you used to. I think you got to be careful with certain exercises and where you put them in. Like now, if I would do say an example, a tricep, like a skull crusher, it's going to go very last in my tricep workout. Yeah. When my elbows are warmed up, when I don't need as much weight, like for me, that's a better approach than having sore elbows all the time. And then how about for unnatural enhanced athletes? Um, do you treat them differently? Absolutely, because natural athletes are much less susceptible to tears. You get a guy taking a lot of gear, then, you know, muscles grow faster than connective tissue, than tendons and ligaments. So you got to be very, you got to be even more cautious um, because their strength goes up so fast. 
you know, their protein synthesis is ramped up 24 hours a day, as opposed to someone who's natural. They don't quite, they don't quite have that. Um, and someone who's natural, their strength has, it doesn't come as fast. So their connective tissue has time to adjust. You don't see that many natural guys tearing their pecs or, you know, tearing the rotator cuffs up. That's usually with guys that have been cranking a little bit extra help. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, yeah, you got to be much more careful with the guys where their strength's starting to skyrocket up. And I tell them, I'm like, look, when you feel crazy strong, that's when I want you to be the most careful. That's when you got to be really careful. Because what happens is you'll do something, you'll tear something, you'll go, well, that felt light. You know, that's what everybody says. Well, that felt light. It didn't even feel heavy. I've done that a million times. Yeah. Yeah, your muscles can do that. But your connective tissue, yeah, it doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't keep up. So you got to be, I think you got to be extra cautious with people there. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Worst advice that you hear being dispensed right now in the bodybuilding world. Since we're coming oh, probably, up hour, I'm I mean, just probably the, throwing some stuff out here. Oh no, that's good. I like this. This is like rapid fire. Yes. So, um, <laughs> I would, I would say that, uh, the, the don't train too hard. Like you don't really need to push yourself. That's the absolute worst advice I'm hearing. Um, I think the people, uh, setting kind of an unrealistic expectation, um, in terms of, um, you get all these people that are trying to be ripped year round and they're posting their pictures year round, you know, which is fine. If you want to do that, that's cool. I post pictures too, but I think, I think this expectation that people have to be in ripped all year round is probably unhealthy. Um, not only just from a not getting muscle perspective, but just a quality of life perspective, it's not easy to be like shredded year round. No, and you, know, and you don't improve your physique. You don't improve. You're, you're probably going to have some nutritional deficiencies. Your joints need fat. You're probably going to be more at risk for injury. I mean, I could give you a nice long list of why it's not a good yeah. idea. You're going to have hormonal problems. Yeah. Um, so I think that think people got to be real careful with what they see there. You know, just because you see your favorite person ripped all the time, that doesn't mean you should be. Um, and most of the time, those pictures they're posting, yeah, like, just anyways, they're pulling them from their photo shoots right after yeah. they that stage. So. They don't look like that year round. No, no. Um, something you've changed your mind about? Um, one thing that uh, I feel very strongly about now is when I was growing up in my first probably 20 years of training, I used muscle soreness as an indicator of progress. Like the sore I am, the better that workout was. Yes. And um, that's absolutely not true. So if you really maximize recovery, you get good at recovering, you may find that you don't even get sore mm -hmm. and you still continue to make progress. So that's one thing that I did a 180 on back in 2012. Um, you know, I had a period where I gained a lot of muscle. I did really well. And I wasn't even sore for like two years, not from one workout. And I was like, wow, man, I, all this time, I didn't need to get sore. I'm not saying if you get a little sore, it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's not necessarily reflective of an awesome workout. Yeah. You might be sore because your nutrition was bad. Yeah. You know? So um, that's one thing I'd say I made a, did a 180 on there. Um, something you believe that most people think is insane. <laughs> most people think it's insane. Um Oh boy, that's a good question. Wow. 
Oh boy. Um, I'm just trying to think there's like a lot of little things. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the guy who really brought bands and chains to bodybuilding. Yes. Um, if someone doesn't believe me, they can go to the, go to the elite, elite FTS YouTube and you can see yeah. Dave and I doing bands, hack reverse band of hack squats and all that back in 2011. Of course, now everybody does that. Hey, I just but, started doing those. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember when I started writing about all that stuff, people are like, that's stupid. That's you're making the bands are helping you. I'm like, you don't understand the, the, you don't understand why we're doing it. Like there's reasons why we're doing this stuff. But I remember people gave me a hard time, like, you don't really know what you're doing. Now you see people doing the same stuff I, I was doing, you know, 10 years ago. Um, that was one thing, I think, when I very first started putting programs out, people were like, well, why are you putting a band on that? Well, there's a reason why. And I've tried to educate them on the strength curve or or maybe I was doing it to protect a joint um, in a vulnerable, you know, where you're at a vulnerable position in, a, in an exercise. There's, yeah. there's a reason why I do everything. Yeah. And then, you know, I think people would say, well, you're training so hard. You're just throwing stuff out there to kill people. I'm like, no, there's a reason why I line everything up the way I do. There's, you know, I've got the strength work that I'm doing. I'm doing the activation work, the strength work. And I'm really focused on blood flow and maximizing that and a pump. And then when the muscle is loaded full of blood, I'm going through an extreme range of motion. I'm training muscles from long muscle lengths. Oh, and guess what? Now all of a sudden the, the science is showing, oh, wow, training long muscle lengths is actually a really good thing. You know, it actually causes uh, not only growth this way in your muscle, it actually grows it lengthwise, you know, sarcomeres in parallel versus series. So, I mean, so I think a lot of my training stuff for first, the first couple of years, people are like, I don't know, man, this sounds too hard. It sounds weird, but you know, um, it's stood the test of time and more people are doing it now than they were then. And, you know, I think it's, I think, uh, think it's fair for me to say it's a good system so totally um okay if you were to think of the word success list the first person that you think of and why uh who's the happiest person i know because it's happiness it's not the amount of money they have it's not how many followers they have it's who's truly happy um who's the happiest person i know That's a good question, too, because a lot of people are grumpy these days. Yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and to focus on the negative with all the stuff that's going on in the world. And mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's um, there's some real interesting data out there that shows when you make a certain amount of money that when you go above that, it doesn't mean you're more happy, like happiness peaks. And then at a certain point, it actually goes down because now you have all these problems to deal with. And I think people that are just kind of focused on. Um, I'll tell you, I'll give you somebody, you know, Josh Wade, right? Yeah. Josh Wade is a good example of somebody that has this. He gets it. Like he's very, very regimented. He's very disciplined, but he also values his time with his family a lot. And he is really, really happy. He's a very happy guy. And it's because he does so much with his family and he has perspective and he has values like those are the people that I think have real happiness. I mean, it's easy to post a picture of your car and say, look how happy I am. I just bought this car. Hey, hey, man, more power to you. Good for you. You got a nice car. I'm happy for you. But I think people didn't get the idea that all this stuff, um, this material stuff is what's going to lead to happiness. If you don't have to worry about your bills, it relieves stress, certainly. Yeah. yeah. But um, and 
but it's not the ultimate, I'm going to wake up and feel fulfilled type of happiness. Because I think to ultimately be your happiest, you have to figure out what your purpose is in life. Um, what are your primary reasons for being here? Is it to raise a family? Is it to be the best teacher you can be? Is it to be a nurse and save lives? What is it that you feel like you make a difference in this world? And I think that when you start to figure that out, and then you start achieving that at a high level, then you can get this high level of happiness. Yeah. And um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people, they just don't figure out why they're on this earth. And um, I get it. I understand that. Um, I totally get it. But um, especially these days, you know, it's hard for people to really try to figure out, you know, why they're here and what their purpose is. And um, but, you know, I like to read a lot of um, I, I, I like to read a lot of philosophy and you know, if you look at um, one of my favorites is Marcus Aurelius. So I think if you look at meditations and you read meditations and his kind of random thoughts about what matters and what doesn't matter. <clears throat> I mean, the guy was king of Rome and he was the emperor and he had all his power, but he was always writing that treat people with respect, to love his family, to love his friends and all this stuff like that was that's impressive to me. Um, that stuff's really impressive to me. That's someone who I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with. Right. Yeah, right. And um, so, you know, I guess, I guess I don't, I don't know if I really answered you, but, <laughs> but I think you have an answer of what I would look for right. <laughs> anyways. And, you know, and I think that, you know, just even with all the COVID stuff that's been happening, it's given people a really big shift in perspective because I think for a long time before anything like this happened, what we did is we were always on, we were always searching for the extraordinary, right? People are always searching for the extraordinary. And when we have crisis that happens like this in the world and even in our, in just in our, you know, our own city, in our, in society, I think what it does is we take for granted just the ordinary and because we're searching for the extraordinary. And so when stuff like this happens, it makes us back up and go, whoa, actually the ordinary is extraordinary, right? Our family, even just having like, man, I'm so grateful that I have a garage gym because if, and it's something that is that simple. The fact that I can still go and buy coffee, that's pretty freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like those things that we just really take for granted. Or, you know, you think about the amount of time now that we were actually forced to spend with our family, <laughs> which, you know, some people might think is a negative, but um, I, I think that it's, it's really shifted a lot of people's perspective on things. So yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So this one advice you'd give your 20 year old self. Um, well, when I was 20, I went through a little bit of a wild time. We <laughs> all. <laughs> I, um, yeah. So I, I lived a very, um, sheltered life in high school okay. and, um, I had a grandmother raised me. I never drank any alcohol. I was very straight laced. And then I went to college and I got a taste of the party life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had this old green Thunderbird, this old car. I got it for $500 and we had a keg of beer in the back seat. And um, everywhere I went, the keg of beer went and I didn't even like beer. Um, but um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I look at, um, I look at all the, the dumb stuff I did, but 
it served some value in my life. I understood that I went through that phase and I think the only thing that I would probably change, I know the popular answer is probably I wouldn't change a thing, but there are some things I would change. If there was anything I could change, it'd probably be some of the relationships I had with people. I wish I'd have been better, a better friend. I wish I'd been nicer. I wish I'd have been nicer to some girlfriends I had. I wish I would have thought a little more highly of some friends I had. I just wish I would have done a better job with some of the relationships I had overall. Um, I wish I would have told my grandmother I loved her more. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things that if I could change anything, that's what I would change. Yeah. So have you hung up your competition trunks? Well, interestingly, when I had that heart attack, I was thinking about coming back for uh, one more show. Yeah. I mean, I was feeling good. I was 225, 227. I was in good shape. Um, but um, when that happened, I think it's probably best to call it a day, right? You know, yeah. it's, it's, I don't, I don't know how to quantify stress on your heart when you're pre-contest, yeah. but it certainly would seem to me like it might be pretty stressful. Yeah. So I, I, as much as I love to compete, um, as much as I would love to really get to that again, I think it's probably wise that I keep training for health, but you know, the competition part probably needs to go on the back burner. Well, I mean, you, um, you coach a lot of really incredible athletes too, which I think you still get to be in the competition world, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, how many athletes did you have at the Olympia this year? Um, Terrence who got second and Missy who got first. Yes. Which was, incredible. Uh, Shanique. She was so amazing. Oh, she's an awesome person. So she's, amazing. She was dealing with some injuries too. And you'd never know it by seeing her routine. All those girls, if there's one thing that has amazed me in the last two years, it's the fitness girls. I mean, and all those girls are injured from yeah. doing all those incredible moves that they do. They're really incredible athletes. And it blows my mind when I see how much muscle they carry, but the athleticism that they have. Well, how um, do you lead to be, to do the judging, like the quarter turnarounds physique wise and, and then go and do that. Like I can't imagine in my last week of, of prep and the, yeah. the day of the show being a gymnast. Right. Right. What they do like their level, like they are true athletes. I, Incredible I athletes. Love watching them. Yeah. That was a real treat for me to watch them. And then um, Oxana's routine was amazing. Of course, Missy rolls a six foot cage out there and she does a flip off the cage. And so incredible. I love it. <laughs> that was mind blowing. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was a good year. I helped Sean obviously with his training and he got, he won the two twelves. He's um, he's been working with me for training now for about seven years. And um, uh, Shanique, um, I helped her. She got a, you know, controversial second place, but um, so yeah, I mean, overall it was a really good, a really good showing for the crew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's, we're coming up just past an hour. It, it blew by. Um, any last words you'd like to throw out there before we uh, close. I know Christine has to take off. She has a phone call, so she might back thank out. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That was amazing. You're, thank you. Well, I appreciate you listening. <laughs> Hopefully one day we're going to recruit her into bodybuilding, but I've still got my fingers crossed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, one of those people who can call myself out and just say, I don't think I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes. What's that old saying? Know thyself. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah.
Well, um, yeah, John, I just want to say thanks so much for, for you coming on and, and chatting. Um, I'd love to love, love, love to have you on again. Cause I think Mike would love to ask you some even more questions. And I feel like there's more stuff I'd love to chat with you about, but, um, uh, I know that we're, your, your time is, is limited. So, um, I guess we will, uh, say goodbye for now. All right. Well, thanks for having me and hopefully your listeners will enjoy it and, um, just let me know. So, oh yeah. So how can they find you if people want to, so are you, do you still take clients or are you just, are you just, Oh boy. Oh, I'm trying not to, <laughs> but you also have a team though, right? Like you have, you I've got a, um, I've got a couple people that help me out. Um, cause I'm pretty overloaded right now, yeah. but, um, you know, the coaches I have that work for me do a really, really good job. Like they yeah. wouldn't work for me if they didn't do a good job. Of yeah. So that's mountaindogdiet.com. And then my uh, YouTube and Instagram is Mountain Dog One. Yeah. And I mean, John has a whole bunch of programs on his website as well. So, you know, I mean, there's some people who can't afford the whole coaching thing, but if you're looking for programs, you can always uh, check out his website to pull some, some good ones off of there. But otherwise, hopefully we can have round two with Mr. Meadows. But for today. Well, again, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Very welcome. We'll see you next time.